On this week's episode, we welcome former Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. There's one thing that all Americans would agree upon. They don't want bad democracy. They want democracy that works for their kids. They want it to work for America. And yet, so many feel as though democracy is failing them miserably. I wouldn't be so pessimistic. It's being tested, no two ways about it. I think our democracy is being tested internally and externally. These are the big 21st century tests that we have to go through. Uh, I think we'll get through them, but they're big tests to our democracy, no two ways about it. Um, But you can look at specific instances in recent history and show where democracy worked, where internationally democracy in Ukraine is working. So I I like to look at the glass of life as being half full, not half empty. Uh, But we've got some pretty darn strong tests coming in front of us. And, you know, that's going to be the big challenge of the 21st century. Democracy versus authoritarianism, I think, is the classic struggle in the 21st century. Help people to understand who are not as insightful and as, as the elected officials are, understand how democracy is working in Ukraine when people are dying, they've lost their way of life, infrastructure is being destroyed, well, they're being relocated to places all over the world, uprooted from their homes. Yeah, I'm not saying democracy presently in Ukraine is working because they're in the middle of a war. Uh, But what I'm trying to say is, I think Putin thought he could get away with it. I mean, he did invade Georgia with very little consequence and took southern Osatia. He did take Crimea with little, you know, slaps on the wrist. So I think he probably thought he could get away with it. And the democracy was too self-absorbed and too polarized to do anything about it. NATO was, you know, past its prime. After he invaded, what happened? Democracy completely came unified to Ukraine's defense. NATO is expanding. Finland and Sweden are joining NATO. So the point I would make is democracy, when pushed against a wall, when free people are faced with an existential challenge to their freedom, they're going to be the most powerful force in humankind, I think. And what do you have? You've got an absolutely rallied democracies around the country and NATO expanding. And Putin is no longer taking Kiev. He's trying to take Donbass. And they're in a huge war, a big fight. Point being, I think, by the way, I think the Chinese are noticing this as well. Democracy is having a pretty good moment. As ugly and bloody as Ukraine is, it's a good moment for democracy. And free people are rallying together to support fellow free people who are at risk of losing those freedoms. That's but, the point I'm trying to make on, on Ukraine and democracy. But could uh, America's democracy, its leadership, um, in terms of being mis- miscalculating uh, Putin over the last several administrations, could what we're seeing today have been avoided? Yeah, I think so. I think, again, that's the great thing about democracy as well. You learn from mistakes, you get new leadership, you, you, you kind of reset your system every four or five, whatever years, and you learn from those mistakes. If you have to go back, I mean, that's the great thing about hindsight, especially with democracies, because authoritarians typically don't learn from their mistakes. They double down on their mistakes. They insulate themselves with yes-men, sycophants, and don't get complete accurate information. And I think that was clearly Putin's issue. What should we have done? We should have done more when he invaded uh, Georgia. We should have done more when he invaded Ukraine. We probably should have been a little clearer with respect to expanding NATO and making it easier for Georgia and Ukraine to to westernize and to to embrace democracy. 
So that's, that's a pretty good lesson learned there. Um, but I think two takeaways I get right now from Ukraine is we overestimated the strength and the power of the Russian military. It is nothing what we thought it was uh, from a conventional standpoint. And we probably underestimated the barbarism of, of Vladimir Putin, just how evil and, and barbarous this man is. He is just weighing, lay, laying waste to whole cities in Ukraine, indiscriminately targeting civilians and, and children and hospitals and theaters and apartment complexes. So I think we underestimated just how, how evil and barbarous this guy is. At the same time, I think we overestimated just, just how strong his military is. And I think with the Western support that the Ukraine military is having, they are, they are pushing the Russians back. Now, they're a bit of in a stalemate right now in Donbass, but I'm going to bet on the Ukrainians to win this thing. But do you um, agree with the current administration policies? Because you've always have been a big believer that actions certainly have consequences. Yeah. They don't have the long-range missiles to reach Russia. Vladimir Putin just issued a threat that if we were to arm Ukraine with those missiles, there will be consequences. Yeah, I mean, he made that threat after we had already made it clear we're giving them medium and short-range missiles, not long-range missiles. We had already made that clear. I actually think Biden's done pretty well on this. I mean, I would have here and there done things differently. I would have been faster on weapon deployment and the rest. But I think he's done a pretty good job, all things considered. What has he done? He's built a very good coalition. Uh, getting the Germans and French to give up their oil and gas to the extent that they have and they will, it's a pretty impressive accomplishment. So he's built a pretty good international coalition of democracies. That's been good. Uh, he's gotten through Congress good packages at helping the Ukrainians defend themselves, arm themselves, and keep their civil society and their government going. So, and we've got NATO expanding. And I think they will. I think the, 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 the Erdogan move is just more of a you know, he's just trying to help himself with his, for, his, for his next run of elections. I think Finland and Sweden is going to join NATO. So all things considered, I think the administration's actually handled this pretty well. I would have done a few things differently, but generally speaking, I think they've handled it pretty well. So you also agree with the 40 plus billion dollars? Yeah, yeah, I would have voted for that if I were in Congress. So, so let me, let me let's, let's come back at home. Uh, there are three branches of government, legislative, judicial, executive. You ran the legislative branch of government. Um, help our audience understand just the kind of powers uh, that the legislative branch has. Because it does seem as though today that the president is able to make decisions where really Congress has the authority, but they just concede to yeah. the president. It, that's been a struggle for a long time. And the modern presidency, I would argue, has probably accrued too much power vis-a-vis -vis the separation of powers in the legislative branch. Having said that, you can point to pretty good institutional instances where Congress has asserted itself pretty boldly. Um, what happens is when you're Speaker of the House and you're, you're running the legislative branch, you, you have a legal team, the, 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 the Council of, of Congress, the General Counsel, and you end up going into legal disputes with the executive branch. I did this um, with Obama on, on, on subpoenas for the Fast and the Furious, on, on appropriations measures. Nancy's done the same. Boehner did it before. So there's always a little bit of tension between the executive branch and the legislative branch. That's good. I mean, the, the founders did a—it it was a beautiful system they designed. I used to think 
when I was trying to get a through, bill through the House, how tough it was because you had to go to the House and then the Senate and get through the filibuster. And then hopefully a president signs into law. It's this three-stage process that's really laborious. And I used to marvel at these parliamentary systems like the Brits have, like all the other democracies basically have. It's one and done. One election and you're done. One bill and it's done and it's in law. I now am so glad we have the system we have. I am so thankful for it because it means you really don't do big things in your country unless you have real consensus, unless you have really vetted an issue and gotten something through that the general public and the other branches of government generally go along with and support. And that is why I think America has done so well for so long. That's why we're free. That's why we're prosperous. That's why we're the most successful country from an economic upper mobility standpoint in human history. I really think it's the elegant design of our Constitution. Chief among those, in addition to the Bill of Rights, you know, natural individual rights, is the separation of powers. Three separate co-equal branches of government in constant tension and competition with one another. The executive branch has taken a lot of liberties and has taken more authority. And this goes back to, you know, Nixon and, and, and before. And I think that the legislative branch has more work to do to, to re-acquire um, its, its, its powers. The power that I worry about the most is the power of the purse, and that is the appropriations process. This gets kind of wonky, and I don't want to filibuster you here, but we have a broken budget process. We have a broken appropriations process. Because right now, and this happened when I was there as well, is it's basically one giant bill. We call them omnibus appropriations bills. They're about that thick. And that's all discretionary spending in government, meaning all government agencies is done in one bill, where it's basically four people, Speaker of the House, the Minority Leader, the Majority and Minority Leader of the Senate, uh, you know, write this thing. And it really should be broken up among the various members of Congress on the, on the 12 different appropriations committee, 12 different bills. And what that is, is Congress funding what government does and does not do, which is the elected branch of government's responsibility not the appointed branch of government's responsibility, the executive branch's responsibility. That to me is where our power as, 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 as people, as Congress has atrophied the most. That to me is where we need to restore uh, the, the separation of powers more. And having a functioning budgeting process where the power of the purse really does um, lay in the hands of Congress, our elected representatives. But it sounds as though it will never happen. No, I think it, it, it's, I actually launched a big effort on a bicameral basis to, to redo this, and we didn't have any buy-in from the Democrats. So it's going to have to take a bipartisan effort. I think, ultimately, I think we'll get there. The other point I'd make, and like you said, I don't want to filibuster you, is, and we've passed this bill when I was in the speakership, you know, both terms I did this, we delegate too much power to the executive branch to actually write the laws. We, we pass these sort of vaguely worded statutes and then we say to the government agency, you fill in the details, you write the rules and regulations. And what happens is the laws we experience as people, they're not really written to the, to the, to the detail of where we experience it by legislative you know, writers, by the, our elected representatives. They're written by some unelected permanent bureaucrat in a government agency. So I've always believed, like many state legislatures have, that we return that power to the legislative branch where final rules and regulations that take the full force of law they come back to Congress for a final vote and approval or amendment before they go into effect. Um, I've always believed we should do that. We've passed that reform in Republican um, houses and in, in, in Senate, but we've never been able to get into law because progressives don't like this. This is antithetical to the sort of left-wing progressive philosophy, which is 
have Congress pass vague bills and then have permanent bureaucrats basically write the details. Uh, that to me is, 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 is shows you the atrophy of the legislative branch of government. So if you fix those two things, final regulations come back to Congress for final vote and approval before they go into effect, restoring the appropriations process so that your elected representative actually really has a hand in writing what Congress spends its money on and what it doesn't and how it spends that money. Those two things right there, I think, will kind of reset the system where you truly have co-equal branches of government. And that, to me, is, is two practical ideas how to restore freedom, democracy, representative self-determining government in, in America. Congress is not broken. Why has it surrendered the war power, the treated power, and legislative power to the president through limited delegations of powers that belong to Congress? I wouldn't say it's totally broken, it's, but it's partially broken to some of the points you just made. Um, you know, the war powers is very important. We have these authorization of force uh, laws that we passed. We passed them after 9-11. We passed them in the Iraq War. And there was a really good, vibrant debate. Uh, this occurred under my watch as well, about, you know, whether those, those, those authorizations of the use of force, you know, ex should be limited or not. Part of the challenge we've had in fighting the war on terrorism is we couldn't get new resolutions passed. We literally didn't have the votes to pass them, but we knew we had act, active acts of terrorism that we had to respond overseas to, to try and prevent these things from coming onto our shores. So there's always been a good, healthy tension between um, the power to wage war, specifically against terrorism in this case, and Congress's War Powers Act. So there's always gonna be a healthy tension. There's never gonna be the right answer. There's never going to be, it's, it, we have it perfectly balanced. I do believe too much power has been given to the executive branch, like I just described, on regulations and on, on, on spending money. But generally speaking, Congress can and does assert itself all the time. Uh, when we do do appropriation bills, we put riders on those appropriation bills that restrict the activity of the administration. You know, you can't actually get a law into law unless it's passed by Congress first. So there really is a good healthy tension between the House and the Senate, I mean, excuse me, between the Senate, the House, and the executive branch. We win some, we lose some, but, but it's not all lost. There are lots of examples, lots of recent examples of where the institutions have been stressed and the legislative branch has guarded its responsibilities jealously against the executive branch. And then, you know, the referee at the judicial, judicial branch has often, you know, called balls and strikes as they have done and as they will do. So I, I'm not one of these pessimistic peoples who think it's all gone, the separation of powers has been eroded. They actually do work and they actually have asserted their powers. And as a result, freedom and liberty still exist and is still alive here in America, but we're going into this digital 21st century world. That presents new challenges, new challenges on liberty, on privacy, on freedom, and um, it presents new opportunities for democracy to be able to spread across the world, for democracy to be able to stand up against totalitarianism, authoritarianism. So I am actually looking at, at the century ahead of us and I see a ton of opportunity if we get things right, for not just for America, but for free people, for liberty and democracy itself. You know, I think most Americans will agree that Congress in recent years has become more partisan, more divided, more chaotic. 
Is there ever a possibility, which seems to be in the air now, that Congress can ever find consensus on gun control, abortion, balanced budget? I don't, gun control, I th watch this Toomey bill. I think, it's, I think it's Toomey and Manchin. You know, they're working a, an issue right now. Uh, I think it has to do with sort of red flags and some other things. There may be some consensus on that. Um, I think on abortion, that's, just, that's pretty much black and white issue. That's axiomatic. Uh, and, and our parties have squared. There used to be pro-life Democrats. I don't think there are anymore. I, I haven't checked the latest Congress whip check, but my guess is they don't have any uh, pro-life members anymore. I think they're, I think they're all gone. Um, there are some pro-choice Republicans. There's, there's a reasonable amount of pro-choice Republicans. But on that issue, I don't think you're going to see. It's a pretty hard issue to compromise on, frankly. It's, 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 it is or it isn't. You know, it's, that's, there are some real axiomatic, you know, stark issues. But let's get back to your, your earlier point. Um, let me give you some data points. Um, my last term as speaker was 20, uh, the 2017-2018 term. That was where we had a Republican House, a Republican Senate, a Republican President. We passed in the House, I think it's 1,172 bills that session. That's about double what Congress usually passes. So we had one of the most productive sessions of the legislature since I think the Reagan first term. And all those bills we passed, about 80% of those bills were bipartisan bills. Got big bipartisan votes. We, we attacked the opioid epidemic. We worked on getting cures for cancer. We overhauled the way the Veterans Administration works. We did criminal justice reform. You name the issue, we, we probably tackled it. Um, and then there were things we did were, were sort of on our own, like tax reform, which was a big you know, accomplishment and achievement of my, my own that I worked on for 20 years as a Ways and Means member. And that was a huge collaboration with other Republicans and we basically made that a party line. But if you look at all those bills that passed in that term, which you would think was a pretty controversial time, over 80% of those bills were bipartisan. So here's what happens. Hits and clicks um, go on, get, get attention if it's, if it's people at each other's throats. If it's, if it's combat, political combat, if it's, if it's controversial, that's what people see when they open up their phone, when they turn on their TV. But just so you know, a lot of what happens in Congress is under the radar, bipartisan, bills that pass, that, that fix a lot of problems, and that are very overwhelmingly bipartisan, they get no attention. So it doesn't surprise me that the, 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 the average going member of the public who's not spending their day watching Congress thinks it's always fighting, it's always terrible, it's all polarization, nothing getting done, when in fact, there's a lot of stuff that does happen so on a bipartisan So it sounds like basis. what you're saying now is an indictment of the fourth estate. Yes, you guys. <laughs> I'm, yes. I'm partly joking. No, you're, you're serious. But, but, I, but I am serious. It, 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 a little tongue in cheek, but yes media focuses on controversy they focus on division they focus on angst um, those are the those are, that's what gets ratings that's what gets hits hits and clicks when we do some boring bill that solves some problem um, I, I remember we were we spent all this time focused on the opioid epidemic which is throughout America and we passed very comprehensive solutions to this problem big bipartisan votes it, it got crickets. It, 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 no one paid attention to it. I can go on and on with a lot of different issues that we solved, and, and they're still solving problems in Congress. We call it suspensions. The beginning of every week in Congress, you come in um, the day you fly in, and you have what we call suspension votes. What does that mean? That means 
you've suspended the rules of going through the rules committee because you have two-thirds vote um, for a bill. And we pass dozens of bills every single week. We, I mean, I'm not there anymore, but Congress does, that are bipartisan, that have at least two-thirds vote in the House. And those bills, by and large, pass through the Senate. So just so you know, things do get done. Bipartisanship does occur. But frankly, it gets no press because it's not exciting. It's not interesting. It doesn't boost ratings. It doesn't get eyeballs. You know, uh, Mr. Speaker, um, many Americans are losing their way of life. They're fearful. Every week, it's a different massacre. I don't know if you think that any branch of government can do anything to stop that. But how do you make people believe that their schools are safe, yeah. their communities are safe, their churches are safe, their synagogues are safe? Any place is safe anymore. I think are more guns by responsible people? Is that the answer? Is it arming schools uh, with resource officers? Is that the answer? Because it does seem that they don't go, they only go where there are no gun zones. They certainly don't go to zones where they know people are armed. What is the answer? Is faith the answer? Is it your church? What do you say to them? Well, first of all, if you say, I have to rely on just the federal government to solve my problem, then you're not going to get a good answer. I think you have to look into your community and, and participate. Is it your church? Is it your community? Is it civil society? This, this goes beyond just gun laws. This goes into our culture. This goes into mental health. This goes into security, securing our schools. So there's, there's not one magic bullet answer, no pun intended, that's going to solve these things. So why do people do this? How do we early intervene? How do we address mental health problems? How do we, I think hardening schools is clearly going to be one of the answers, but that's not a federal responsibility. That, that's a local school district and state responsibility. So I think all levels of government have a role to play here, but also society and culture has a role to play here. And society and culture is not government. That's, society is the space that we live between ourselves and our government, where we actually live our lives. And so I think families and individuals and community leaders and, and just people in communities have a role to play there as well. And so that's not just government. So I think it's, it's important that you understand that we as people understand the role of civil society, the role of, 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 of government, local government and what local government has to play. And yes, I, as a, just a, a dad of three kids, I do believe um, hardening schools is a smart answer. I think you know, having the right kind of security protocols and having the right kind of people in those schools to protect, to protect kids is obviously a smart answer. But frankly, that's really a local government. That's a local and state government responsibility. You know, I was taken <clears throat> back um, when you gave credit to President Biden on his foreign policy. It is something so rare from a Republican. <laughs> Uh, and I think it's important. I think it's important. The Bible says, if you find something good in it, praise it. So I believe in that. But how would you um, discuss and assess our president when it comes to what is happening here in our country? I don't know many presidents in recent memory whose disapproval rating is almost 70%. Yeah. Well, I'm not a fan, so, but that doesn't mean if he does something right and well, you don't, you don't give credit for it where credit is due. And I think on Ukraine, 
there's credit due. You know, before you get into talking about president as it relates to American soul, where many Americans don't feel that Americans are first any longer, that Americans are last. Let's talk about our president. And I say our president because he is our president. <clears throat> always respect. Uh, and always respect the will of the voters, always. However, disapproval, rate, disapproval ratings are nearing almost 70%. So let me go through this with you. Some people say, because he immediately wanted to turn back the Keystone Pipeline, this yeah. is why we have these surging fuel prices. You're shaking your head. The borders are out of control. Biden made us believe that he <clears throat> somehow could wave a magic wand and control inflation. And you, being the man you are with numbers, <clears throat> knew that was just politics, politics that would come back to bite him. The supply chain is just as worse today as it was years ago. And it seems like sometimes presidents get a reprieve, they get a break, but he hasn't. Why? I think his domestic policies have been a total disaster. Uh, <clears throat> I think, look, we can all interpret this different ways. I think his approval ratings are so low is because he came in giving people the impression that he was going to be a moderate, that he was going to move to the center and govern from the center. Um, I can tell you the suburban voters in my state and other states like mine believed that, and that's why they voted for him. He didn't do that. He, f for one reason or another, he gave the keys to the left. He basically let the progressives run his agenda. So the person that I think a lot of swing voters thought he was going to be, that's not the Joe Biden we have in the White House now. This, we have a Joe Biden in the White House who basically has given the progressives their policy dream list, but they don't have majorities to do it. That's what, that's what I never understood. If, if you have, like Obama came in, his first two years, he had a bulletproof majority. He had 60 votes in the Senate and a big cushion in the House, and he ran through a lot of things that he believed in, which I totally disagreed with. Biden tried the same thing, but he had, you know, a zero margin in the Senate and a tiny, tiny sliver of a majority in the House. So I never, frankly, understood why he would do that, other than he just got worn down and he decided to give the left what they wanted. And so what do we have for policy? You just recited them. The border policy is a disaster. His economic policy is awful. And what I mean when I say that is there's two kinds of inflation. There's monetary inflation and non-monetary inflation. Monetary inflation is really the purview of the Federal Reserve, and I think they're too little, too late. Uh, Jay Powell should have started soaking up the excess money supply. They increased the monetary base by 30%. Now, given we had a COVID pandemic crisis and they needed to respond in an emergency form, and they did a good job then, but they needed to mop up all this excess money supply, get rates up higher earlier, and they didn't. That's the Fed. But the Biden problem is he tried cramming through, well, he crammed through this last round of stimulus, which was one round too many, I think they came in thinking we'll take credit for for coming out of covid and we'll get our spending wish list you know answered to and that fueled inflation on top of that he did all this anti-carbon stuff so he's still doing it he's not opening up american energy supply in a way that could immediately move the future markets get gas prices down make us independent oh by the way help our european friends there's so much more that he could do keystone's just one of many things that he could have done but again, the left doesn't want him to make carbon prices lower. The left doesn't want him to open American energy um, security and energy production. So he's not. 
So I think they're sort of saying they're doing it when they're actually not doing it. So the, that's all inflationary. That's all non-monetary inflation. Bad supply chain policy, bad energy policy. That's, and then you just see these porous borders, which is not good for wages, not good for national security. Fentanyl and drugs coming to our country. It's no wonder he has these low approval ratings. And the, the problem is he gave the keys to the left. If he governed in the middle and, and tried to get good centrist deals, he could have gotten it. But it's, now it's, it's past that time. You know, we're in the campaign season now. So I think the die is cast, and that's why I think we're going to get a majority. You know, the Constitution aims to um, arrest majoritarian rule through separation of powers of checks and balances. In other words, the Constitution, what it does, it contemplates the so-called gridlock that we talked about earlier as a virtual absent consistence among a variety of political factions. Were the Constitution and architects wrong, in your opinion? Is gridlock a virtue or a vice, in your opinion? It's a virtue in today's parlance because, look, my biggest fear is they're going to pass this Build Back Better thing, which is just going to add inflation. All that will do is make American businesses less competitive. It will slow down economic growth. It will cost us jobs and crank up prices uh, and all that spending. So they have bad tax policy that puts American businesses at a, at a competitive disadvantage and really inflationary spending policy. So divided government is going to give us the ability to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, I think their razor thin majorities, you know, mansion and cinema so far looks like it's not going to happen. But so in this case, divided government's a good thing because divided government will give us predictability that we won't put bad policies in place. We won't pour gas on the inflation fire. So in this case, divided government's a good thing. And it gives us, frankly, stable, predictable government. Because if when we get, I think we will get the House, and I think we have a really good chance of getting the Senate, that means we're not gonna go off to the left uh, like Biden's trying to go. And it sort of centers things. And I think that's gonna be good for the economy, good for inflation. And I, hopefully the Federal Reserve will pick up its pace. I think they will. They seem to send the signals that they are going to. And, and so, yeah, divided government in this case is good. But having said that, Armstrong, we get some pretty big challenges in front of us in this century uh, that I'm very worried about. This is what I spend time at, at the American Enterprise Institute working on, which is America is the world's reserve currency. Ever since Bretton Woods in 1944, we have been the world's reserve currency. This gives us an exorbitant privilege. That's a phrase that's been used over years. It gives us huge advantages in the world. And we're risking that from, from, from losing that. And if we lose our reserve currency, we won't be able to cash flow our social contract. And if you think America is polarized today, just wait. I think they just moved the new numbers on the trustees report on Medicare and Social Security. So they go bankrupt in like 2035 and 2030. Uh, Social Security and Medicare. Just wait. If we don't have a reserve currency status then, if we're paying really high interest rates to borrow all this money to pay for these commitments, which are important commitments, and we have to cut these programs in real time, Medicare, I think it's, I'm just doing that off the top of my head, so don't fact check me on this, but I think Medicare will get about a 10% across the board benefit cut and Social Security gets a 20% across the board benefit cut if we don't fix their finances by the time these, these economic crises hit, by the time they go insolvent, their trust funds. And if we have to borrow money to fill that gap and we're not the world's reserve currency, it's gonna be extraordinarily expensive, really bad for our economy, and you will have to cut these entitlement programs in real time. 
So I see in the next decade or so a real challenge for our country, for our democracy. And that is why we have to get our fiscal house in order. It's one of those questions my mother-in-law used to always say this, a stitch in time saves nine. If you can do some important budget surgery to, to change these programs so that they're guaranteed, so that my mom's generation gets the benefits that they were promised and that the next generation actually gets health and retirement security that works, that is affordable, I think this can be done. That helps you dodge the, the debt crisis that we have coming and preserve your reserve currency. So these are huge problems we have really right in front of us. And our government's going to have to work to solve this problem. And right now, I just don't see that happening. And I definitely don't see a Biden administration stepping up to take on this challenge. So we're going to have to get the kind of government, the kind of Congress, the kind of presidency that can tackle these issues so that we can have a great 21st century American century. And this, to me, is probably perhaps one of the biggest challenges that's facing us and democracy itself. And the same fiscal problem occurs in, 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 in Western Europe. Uh, in, in democracies across the world. So I see a big challenge for democracy, and we're going to have to have a political system that can respond to this challenge, but I, I wouldn't bet against this. I think we'll probably get it done at the end of the day. What makes you so confident that if Republicans gain control of the House and Senate, they will do any better? And what gives you encouragement for Republicans regaining power that they're doing today in this current environment we find ourselves in? Well, I think we'll do better because we won't do bad, meaning we won't. I think the stuff that Biden has proposed passing is bad for the country, bad for inflation, bad for the economy, bad for workers, bad for, for getting people you know, on the escalator of upward mobility. So number one, getting Congress means we don't do bad policies. Then getting Congress, perhaps we can get, you know, get, get Biden to the table and actually get some, some positive things done that we can agree on, a mutual, mutual benefit. I think there's an opportunity for that. But I think you're going to, that's probably 2023. Then you get into 2024 and you're going to have a, you know, one whale of a presidential election like we always have. And it gets, it gets harder to do that. I honestly think 2025 is kind of the magic year for us to make or break on critical policy decisions for this country to really fix, fix a lot of our problems. You mentioned the border a minute ago. We got to fix our immigration laws. We got to fix our border security. We got to fix legal immigration. That's going to be a big deal. And then we have this entitlement problem. I frankly think our tax system's in good shape. It can be improved. But we have a good tax code that's wired for economic growth. We have an administration that, that I worry is going to regulate overkill. But if we have divided government Congress, and if we can get a Republican president, Republican Congress, you know, look at me. I'm saying, yes, give my party total power, and everything's going to be great. Um, I wish I could say that with great confidence. But I, I, I would rather have a system where you, your party runs on an agenda and a platform of what needs to be done to solve the country's problems. And then if you win that election after offering that agenda to the country, this is what we did in 2016. If you, if you win that election, then you have earned the right to put those policies in place. And I really believe that we're gonna probably have divided government for the next couple of years. That's gonna be good. It's gonna be calming. It's gonna mean not bad economic policy passing, but it really, in my opinion, isn't until you have a shot in 2025 with a new president and a, and a Congress to, to solve some of these bigger problems. And I think it's budget reform and, and immigration reform. There's a lot of other issues out there, but I think those are two big time issues that need to be solved if we want to get um, our mojo back as a country. And hopefully that election is an election 
on substance, on issues, not personality conflicts, but on substance and issues, so that we can sort of break through this log jam and fix these problems. I think democracy is going to survive. I think we're going to get through it. I think we'll do it. Um, but I think, I'm going back to an earlier point I made, the authoritarians are watching. Xi in China is watching. Putin is on his heels right now. But they make this argument that, that democracy is decadent, it's self-absorbed, it's polarized, it can't operate, it can't function efficiently, and we authoritarians can. Well, I think, I think we're learning the, the lie under that. I think we're learning that the authoritarians take away your, your freedom. They're run by people who are insulated, who don't really understand their own people. Uh, and, and democracy, I think, is vibrant. Democracy gives you better living standards. Democracy gives you freedom and self-determination. And I do believe if we have a couple good elections based on substance and policies and ideas and solutions, that democracy can have another great century and free people can do well. And America is the indispensable country in the world. And I really do believe that if we have good elections in America and we tackle these totally solvable problems, we'll be great, we'll be fine. But let's not think that Washington solves every problem. Let's remember we ourselves, in our communities, in our churches, in our civic institutions, in our local governments, that's really where we live our lives. That's really where we need to reinvigorate our activities. And let's also try and, and, and buttress those institutions as well while we do this. So politics, is it in your future? No, I'm good. I'm, I did it for 20 years. I was a staffer for five years, and then I was a member of Congress for 20 years. We understand this. You have been and on so the road. You have been I, did it for, I, I enjoy, I teach at Notre Dame. I love doing that. Yeah. That's so funny. We've heard all this before department. from other uh, I know, thought leaders but and elected officials. And you know, we've, I've kept my word on these things. You've you know been that. on the road so. supporting <laughs> candidates that you believe in, which tells us you still care about democracy. Is there anything uh, that would cause you to run for office again? I think it's a reasonable question. I think maybe you don't know the answer. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm 52, but right now I still got two kids at home in high school. So I'm, I'm enjoying private life. I do a lot of cool civic stuff. So I'm, it's possible. It's, it's possible, but not, okay. not in the near sure. future. Not, not anytime the, soon. Not in the near. The near future could be next week. But no, no, I'm not. I mean, I, not even. Not in. Not in. Not but in I guess. This. But it, you would be open. It's, uh, I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer to that. But it's definitely not 24 or earlier or anything like that. The good news is you don't know. That's the most important thing. Is that <laughs> I'm you don't not know. positive. I guess you're I'm not saying. positive. But moving on, <laughs> Americans are losing their way of life yeah. at the gas pump, man. Gas, they're saying, could go as high as $10 a gallon. Fuel is at an all-time high, and they said it could continue through 2024. How do Americans feel secure, and how do they elect people that can make things at least normal again? If, if, if the Biden administration would really actually open up domestic production, I'm talking all the basins in the, inter in the, in the lower 48 in Alaska, turn on Keystone Pipeline, streamline regulations so that we can produce more oil and gas, that would, would change the futures market right there. So look, I don't think they're, they're going to play this kabuki dance where they're saying they're doing something when they're actually not doing anything. And the Federal Reserve's got to focus its job on inflation. The, the Federal Reserve has, has this two-part agenda, two-part, um, it, it, it's, it's employment and, and, and monetary policy. I think it should be a single mandate, not a double mandate. And the single mandate is get prices under control. Your job is to make sure that our money is, is a reliable store of value, get prices under control. So I think the Federal Reserve could focus on getting inflation down and the Biden administration on the non-monetary inflation that we have 
on gas prices. And, and you can't just sit and blame Vladimir Putin. That's a piece of it. It really is bad domestic policy on oil and gas. If you fix that, then we can get this, this under control. And by the way, I come from Wisconsin. It's really cold in the winter. Just gas prices, $5 gas is one thing. Wait till you have to heat your home next, next winter. That chews up people's paychecks. That erodes people's standard of living. So this administration could do so much more than they are doing, and, and they're not. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think we're going to win Congress, because they want people focusing on their problems on, and solving their problems. And that is not what this administration is doing, and it could. You know, this is a rapid um, session now where you give answers, short answers. Um, okay. So, so let's, let's start this. Your thoughts on transgenderism. Uh, I don't have strong opinions on it one way or the other. I believe in individual rights. Uh, yeah, I don't really, you know, I, I voted for ENDA back in 2006, I think, uh, the in Employment Non-Discrimination Act. So I just think, you know, but the, the bathrooms issue, should, I'm not a big Should biological males play in female sports? No. So, but there you go. What about the fact that many Americans today are concerned that parents, they've not been involved enough in education and around the country, yeah. they're taking back your school Look, birth. I've been a big oh. fan of school choice my whole entire career. Um, I spend time with, with ACE at Notre Dame. It's a Catholic school choice advocacy group. Um, this, is, this, is, this is the crime of the century. We've, we've, we've had this problem a long time. Um, and you, you have school districts dumbing down their curriculum today when we need to ramp it up for international competition. So school choice is among one of the most important things we could do. Yeah, so what if the teachers union doesn't like it? We, choice and competition makes a difference. I'm a big fan of school choice. And the way you can do it with a federal nexus is tax credits uh, administered at the state level. There's a crisis in education. When you look at places like Baltimore, Los Angeles, Atlanta, and particularly the impact it's having on minority kids. You have these ghost kids, the schools are getting paid. They know the kids are not in the classroom. You have some schools with an average GPA, average of 1.0, and these the educational system is failing our kids. How, how do we change that? Because these are the kids that go out, they're homeless, they're sexually trafficked, they commit the crimes, they're homicide. These are the kids, if they're educated, the likelihood of this is happening is, is very unlikely. I know you want short answers. No, no, not here. This is, this is, I spend time, this is my charitable foundation's focus on the American Idea Foundation. Um, I wrote a law, a bipartisan law with Patty Murray, one of the last things I did as speaker called the Evidence-Based Policymaking Act. Long story short, we can look at data, real data on federal poverty programs, education programs at the federal, state, and private sector levels, and we can find out what works and what doesn't work. And, and in education, it's becoming really clear what works and what doesn't work. The problem is entrenched special interests are preventing us from going with what works. But it's not for lack of knowing. So the good news in this good news, bad news story is we're developing, we, meaning society, is developing the ability to measure effective policies at getting kids off the streets, at getting good education in every corner of this country at restarting upper mobility and getting people out of poverty. This is what we spend my, our time at my foundation focused on. And we, we're learning what works and what doesn't work. The question is, do policymakers follow that advice? Do local governments, state governments, and federal governments put the money they're already spending on, on ideas and policies and reforms that are proven to work, or do they keep 
paying for status quo policies? That's the question for the 21st century, for education, for safe schools, for upper mobility, for poverty. Uh, I, and I believe that just data is going to help solve this problem. At Notre Dame, we do, we do about 70 randomized controlled trials on poverty programs in education and other areas around the country to find out what is working to get these kids educated and to give them safe environments. And, and we're learning what that is. So we're going to have good answers. I believe we as in society are gonna have good answers on how to solve some of these problems. The question is, can we get the politics to respond? I think at the end of the day we will, but we're clearly not there yet. One of the things that never was to be was the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, to become physicians. It's having an incredible impact in this country. Yeah, I mean, you gotta have Kathy McMorris on to talk about that. She's gonna be the chairman of the, of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, or Scott Gottlieb, uh, former FDA guy. They can give you far better answers than I can, but this, is, this talks just the sluggishness of bureaucracy, streamlining regulations so that innovation can occur is, is the answer there. But there are people who are smart, far more smart than I am on this that can answer that question better I, than I can. I, how do we get hospitals in the business uh, giving people the medicines and the prescriptions that they need and not giving them these different drugs that they become addicted to so they just can keep them on their roads and they fleece them to make money, they become injured, they become sick. Yeah. And you, you know the impact that it has on society. And it's no accident yeah, I'm a big fan of value-based purchasing, um, value-based. So with this is, I could go on too long on this. Go with, on. With go, transparency, great. what we should as consumers have, like we have in every other aspect of the economy, frankly, except for education and healthcare, is real transparency on quality. W who's good, who's bad, what works, what doesn't work. Where should I go to get the best value? And have those providers of these services, like healthcare, compete against each other for our benefit as consumers. If you have too much government in these programs dictating how it all works, you, you, you lose that, that transfer mechanism, that pricing mechanism, you lose that, that market motive. And so I'm a big believer that if you get hospitals and the entire healthcare system to focus on giving that consumer, the patient value, price plus quality at a, at a good affordable price and have that right kind of competition, you can get to the point you're, you're talking about. So. I really do believe that the right reforms in education and healthcare, where you, you, you give the individual consumer more power by giving them the ability to take the money we always spend on these things, but to spend it in an informed way where there's true choice and competition, that's school choice for healthcare, for, for, for education and real choice and competition in healthcare, I think you can solve a lot of these problems. We spend more money than any other country on healthcare per capita by a, by a mile. We ought to be able to get much better outcomes for our money. And I believe that with the right policies in place, we can get there. But, but again, this is why I'm not a fan of progressives or progressivism. This is why I think the Biden administration is really messing up. They're not following those lessons. They're not learning those lessons. If we apply these lessons in the 21st century, I think we're gonna solve our problems. We just gotta apply these lessons. You know, one of the consequences from the pandemic and COVID-19 is that it has created a permanent victim class. Victimization mm -hmm. has become such a thread in our society. Everybody needs to be taken care of. Everybody needs a stimulus check. Everybody needs help. What has happened to how we grew up and with our parents and our grandparents where we were this rugged individual, individualism, we worked for a living. Uh, except if you're handicapped, 
and you have permanent injuries. What happened? What is happening to our society? Yeah, this is it's a big question. Uh, I spent a lot of time on this at the American Enterprise Institute. We're actually coming up with a, a big uh, a production in the fall on this issue you're talking about. And so as government relations, so there's two parts to your question. There's, there's society and culture, and there's what's government's response to solve these issues. I believe we can and should reform the way our social safety net works so that it is focused on helping people get on their own feet and live independent lives, less dependent on government, more dependent on themselves, and give them the tools to do that. So meaning, do you have a safety net that is wired toward upper mobility, that is wired toward people getting educated and working? Work first policies, that's, that's, that's the nomenclature we use, really do work. So I think, and this was the big debate about, you know, build back better and all of this stuff. Do you just pay people to stay where they are in life, to be dependent upon government, and, and, and to, to give them this idea that they're stuck in their current condition and government will, will, will numb it and make it easier? That's really what the welfare state is. That's really what sort of progressivism is producing. Or do you have a social safety net that is designed and focused on getting people up on with their lives, on their feet, and on an escalator of upper mobility, which, which is really only democracy can provide. An entrepreneurial society where you're, you're getting at the root cause of, of intergenerational poverty, you're getting at the cause of these problems. I believe you can put policies in place that do that, but you have to take on entrenched special interests. You have to take on the status quo. And I think, I think we'll end up doing that in this country. I really do. I believe people love and are still enamored with the promise of America. A, a, a society where our rights are ours pre-government, a society where if you work hard and play by the rules, you get ahead and your kids are better off than you are. That's the American idea. That's the American dream. And, and we right now have policies that frustrate that, that I think are holding people back. But I think we've learned a lot about what works and what doesn't work, what philosophies and policies drive these things. And if we can apply these lessons with these kinds of policies that we know are gonna work, then I think we'll get out of the ditch. I think we'll, we'll, we'll have a great century. We just got some pretty big challenges in front of us and we gotta tackle those challenges. But, but again, democracy does this. I think Churchill kinda said it best. He said, Americans can be counted upon to do the right thing only after they've exhausted all the other possibilities. The other thing he said, I'm a kind of a Churchill fan, is democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other forms of government. See, he always spoke in these kinds of areas, and I'm paraphrasing, but I think we'll get this stuff right at the end of the day. You know, when you drive around major cities, especially a place like Washington, D.C., you come into Union Station, homelessness has become pandemic in these major cities. And if you try to approach them, they're angry. Um, they have mental illness. They, they try to attack you and stick you with needles. It's just a very dangerous place. I mean, why have we allowed all the money that is appropriate, all this money that is spent for this, all these people, not just in Washington, D.C., but throughout the country, are just everywhere populated? French Hill and, and, and Andy Harris, two members of Congress on the re relevant committee in Congress, focus on just this issue, who really have good ideas. The point I'm trying to make is there are good solutions to the homeless problem. A lot of it's local government. There's clearly funding at the federal government. But the point I'm trying to make is we know using data and analytics, economics, what works and what doesn't work in homeless, in homeless policies, whether or not local governments choose to apply those lessons or not is the answer, is, is the question, excuse me, is the question. So a lot of this is addiction. A lot of this is mental illness. It's a multifaceted problem. 
But there are examples all around the country of what really works to tackle the problem of homelessness. Again, this is something we work on where I, at my foundation in Notre Dame, where we, we, we measure programs and, and find out what works and what doesn't work and apply those lessons. Policymakers need to take heed of that and to follow suit. And again, this is not really a federal issue as, as much as it's, it's city, state, county government. You know, what I'm fascinated by and this rare sit down because you don't give interviews. Um, that's a choice you made. We appreciate your coming to our broadcast house. With all the strife and all the chaos, in some ways you think it's good that America's best days are not behind her, but her best days are ahead of her. Sort of Reagan-esque. Um, why? Look, because I don't see all this Acrimony and all this noise is necessarily a bad thing. It's it's the it's the noise of democracy. It's the noise of self determination. It's people, you know, who care about things, exercising their views, and expressing themselves in, in public policy and public life. At the end of the day, cool heads prevail. At the end of the day, that churn, that noise of democracy, which is a good thing, by the way, produces the need to act and produces solutions. So I really do think the system works. And I think when we look, so I take the polarization issue as two, two things. Yes, we're polarized. Yes, I think the media industrial complex or whatever you want to call it, you know, focuses on hits and clicks and identity politics and, and, and bad things. But the noise of us expressing ourselves as we only can in a free society is what gets us to consensus, which gets us to tackle issues and problems. The system does work. Laws do get passed, problems get addressed. Now there's some really big problems that have been, we kicked the can out in a long time. I mentioned the entitlement issue, but at the end of the day, I think we'll get those things in our control as well. We do solve problems, why? Because we can freely express ourselves. Ask a garden variety of Chinese whether they can do that in China. Ask a person in Russian, are they turning on the TV and seeing the truth? No, in America you do, in free societies you do. And free societies get closer to the truth than any other kind of society. And that is why I think having the truth occur and be beyond the airwaves and be in our civic debate is going to ultimately land us at the right answer. Speaker Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us on another episode 